Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 5, Part 2. The next morning, Lorenzo went to the convent and requested to see his sister. The prioress appeared at the gate with a melancholy countenance. She informed him that for several days Agnes had appeared much agitated, that she had been pressed by the nuns in vain to reveal the cause, and applied to their tenderness for advice and consolation, that she had obstinately persisted in concealing the cause of her distress, but that on Thursday evening it had produced so violent an effect upon her constitution that she had fallen ill, and was actually confined to her bed. Lorenzo did not credit a syllable of this account. He insisted upon seeing his sister. If she was unable to come to the grate, he desired to be admitted to her cell. The prioress crossed herself. She was shocked at the very idea of a man's profane eye pervading the interior of her holy mansion, and professed herself astonished that Lorenzo could think of such a thing. She told him that his request could not be granted, but that if he returned the next day, she hoped that her beloved daughter would then be sufficiently recovered to join him at the parlor grate. With this answer, Lorenzo was obliged to retire, unsatisfied and trembling for his sister's safety. He returned the next morning at an early hour. Agnes was worse. The physician had pronounced her to be in imminent danger. She was ordered to remain quiet, and it was utterly impossible for her to receive her brother's visit. Lorenzo stormed at this answer, but there was no resource. He raved, he entreated, he threatened. No means were left untried to obtain a sight of Agnes. His endeavors were as fruitless as those of the day before, and he returned in despair to the Marquise. On his side, the latter had spared no pains to discover what had occasioned his plot to fail. Don Cristobal, to whom the affair was now entrusted, endeavored to worm out the secret from the old porteress of St. Clair, with whom he had formed an acquaintance but she was too much upon her guard, and he gained from her no intelligence. The Marquise was almost distracted, and Lorenzo felt scarcely less inquietude. Both were convinced that the purposed elopement must have been discovered. They doubted not but the malady of Agnes was a pretense, but they knew not by what means to rescue her from the hands of the prioress. Regularly every day did Lorenzo visit the convent, as regularly was he informed that his sister rather grew worse than better. Certain that her indisposition was feigned, 
these accounts did not alarm him but his ignorance of her fate and of the motives which induced the prioress to keep her from him excited the most serious uneasiness he was still uncertain what steps he ought to take when the marquis received a letter from the cardinal duke of lerma it enclosed the pope's expected bull ordering that agnes should be released from her vows and restored to her relations this essential paper decided at once the proceedings of her friends they resolved that lorenzo should carry it to the domina without delay and demand that his sister should be instantly given up to him against this mandate illness could not be pleaded it gave her brother the power of removing her instantly to the palace de medina and he determined to use that power on the following day his mind relieved from inquietude respecting his sister and his spirits raised by the hope of soon restoring her to freedom he now had time to give a few moments to love and to antonia at the same hour as on his former visit he repaired to doña elvira's she had given orders for his admission as soon as he was announced her daughter retired with leonella and when he entered the chamber he found the lady of the house alone she received him with less distance than before and desired him to place himself near her upon the sofa she then without losing time opened her business as had been agreed between herself and antonia you must not think me ungrateful don lorenzo or forgetful how essential are the services which you have rendered me with the marquise i feel the weight of my obligations nothing under the sun should induce my taking the step to which i am now compelled but the interest of my child of my beloved antonia my health is declining god only knows how soon i may be summoned before his throne my daughter will be left without parents and should she lose the protection of the cisternas family without friends she is young and artless uninstructed in the world's perfidy and with charms sufficient to render her an object of seduction judge then how i must tremble at the prospect before her judge how anxious i must be to keep her from their society who may excite the yet dormant passions of her bosom you are amiable don lorenzo antonia has a susceptible a loving heart and is grateful for the favors conferred upon us by your interference with the marquise your presence makes me tremble i fear lest it should inspire her with sentiments which may embitter the remainder of her life or encourage her to cherish hopes in her situation unjustifiable and futile pardon me when i avow my terrors and let my frankness plead in my excuse i cannot forbid you my house for gratitude restrains me i can only throw myself upon your generosity and entreat you to spare the feelings of an anxious of a doting mother believe me when i assure you that i lament the necessity of rejecting your acquaintance but there is no remedy and antonia's interest obliges me to beg you to forbear your visits by complying with my request you will increase the esteem which i already feel for you and of which everything convinces me that you are truly deserving your frankness charms me replied lorenzo you shall find that in your favorable opinion of me you were not deceived yet i hope that the reasons now in my power to allege will persuade you to withdraw a request which i cannot obey without infinite reluctance i love your daughter 
love her most sincerely. I wish for no greater happiness than to inspire her with the same sentiments, and receive her hand at the altar as her husband. Tis true I am not rich myself. My father's death has left me but little in my own possession. But my expectations justify my pretending to the Conde de la Cisternas's daughter. He was proceeding, but Elvira interrupted him. Ah, Don Lorenzo, you forget in that pompous title the meanness of my origin. You forget that I have now passed fourteen years in Spain, disavowed by my husband's family, and existing upon a stipend barely sufficient for the support and education of my daughter. Nay, I have even been neglected by most of my own relations, who out of envy affect to doubt the reality of my marriage. My allowance being discontinued at my father-in-law's death, I was reduced to the very brink of want. In this situation I was found by my sister, who, amongst all her foibles, possesses a warm, generous, and affectionate heart. She aided me with the little fortune which my father left her, persuaded me to visit Madrid, and has supported my child and myself since our quitting Murcia. Then consider not Antonia as descended from the Conde de las Cisternas. Consider her as a poor and unprotected orphan, as the grandchild of the tradesman Torribio d'Alfa, as the needy pensioner of that tradesman's daughter. Reflect upon the difference between such a situation and that of the nephew and heir of the potent Duke of Medina. I believe your intentions to be honorable, but as there are no hopes that your uncle will approve of the union, I foresee that the consequences of your attachment must be fatal to my child's repose. Pardon me, Signora. You are misinformed if you suppose the Duke of Medina to resemble the generality of men. His sentiments are liberal and disinterested. He loves me well, and I have no reason to dread his forbidding the marriage when he perceives that my happiness depends upon Antonia. But supposing him to refuse his sanction, what have I still to fear? My parents are no more. My little fortune is in my own possession. It will be sufficient to support Antonia, and I shall exchange for her hand Medina's dukedom without one sign of regret. You are young and eager. It is natural for you to entertain such ideas. But experience has taught me, to my cost, that curses accompany an unequal alliance. I married the Conde de las Cisternas in opposition to the will of his relations. Many a heart-pang has punished me for the imprudent step. Wherever we bent our course, a father's execration pursued Gonzalvo. Poverty overtook us, and no friend was near to relieve our wants. Still, our mutual affection existed, but, alas, not without interruption. Accustomed to wealth and ease, ill could my husband support the transition to distress and indigence. He looked back with repining to the comforts which he once enjoyed. He regretted the situation which, for my sake, he had quitted. And in moments when despair possessed his mind, has reproached me with having made him the companion of want and wretchedness. He has called me his bane, the source of his sorrows, the cause of his destruction. Ah, God, he little knew how much keener were my own heart's reproaches. He was ignorant that I suffered trebly, for myself, for my children, and for him. Tis true that his anger seldom lasted long, 
his sincere affection for me soon revived in his heart, and then his repentance for the tears which he had made me shed tortured me even more than his reproaches. He would throw himself on the ground, implore my forgiveness in the most frantic terms, and loaded himself with curses for being the murderer of my repose. Taught by experience that a union contracted against the inclinations of families on either side must be unfortunate, I will save my daughter from those miseries which I have suffered. Without your uncle's consent, while I live, she shall never be yours. Undoubtedly he will disapprove of the union. His power is immense, and Antonia shall not be exposed to his anger and persecution. His persecution? How easily may that be avoided? Let the worst happen. It is but quitting Spain. My wealth may easily be realized. The Indian islands will offer us a secure retreat. I have an estate, though not of value, in Hispaniola. Thither will we fly, and I shall consider it to be my native country if it gives me Antonia's undisturbed possession. Ah, youth, this is a fond, romantic vision. Gonzalvo thought the same. He fancied that he could leave Spain without regret, but the moment of parting undeceived him. You know not yet what it is to quit your native land, to quit it never to behold it more. You know not what it is to exchange the scenes where you have passed your infancy, for unknown realms and barbarous climates, to be forgotten, utterly, eternally forgotten by the companions of your youth, to see your dearest friends, the fondest objects of your affection, perishing with diseases incidental to Indian atmospheres, and find yourself unable to procure for them necessary assistance. I have felt all this. My husband and two sweet babes found their graves in Cuba. Nothing would have saved my young Antonia but my sudden return to Spain. Ah, Don Lorenzo, could you conceive what I suffered during my absence? Could you know how sorely I regretted all that I left behind, and how dear to me was the very name of Spain? I envied the winds which blew towards it, and when the Spanish sailor chanted some well-known air as he passed my window, tears filled my eyes while I thought upon my native land. Gonzalvo, too, my husband. Elvira paused. Her voice faltered, and she concealed her face with her handkerchief. After a short silence, she rose from the sofa and proceeded. Excuse my quitting you for a few moments. The remembrance of what I have suffered has much agitated me, and I need to be alone. Till I return, peruse these lines. After my husband's death I found them among his papers. Had I known sooner that he entertained such sentiments, grief would have killed me. He wrote these verses on his voyage to Cuba when his mind was clouded by sorrow, and he forgot that he had a wife and children. What we are losing ever seems to us the most precious. Gonsalvo was quitting Spain forever, and therefore was Spain dearer to his eyes than all else which the world contained. Read them, Don Lorenzo. They will give you some idea of the feelings of a banished man. Elvira put a paper into Lorenzo's hand and retired from the chamber. The youth examined the contents and found them to be as follows. THE EXILE Farewell, O native Spain! 
farewell forever. These banished eyes shall view thy coasts no more. A mournful presage tells my heart that never Gonzalo's steps again shall press thy shore. Hushed are the winds, while soft the vessel, sailing with gentle motion, ploughs the unruffled main. I feel my bosom's boasted courage failing, and curse the waves which bear me far from Spain. I see it yet. Beneath yon blue clear heaven still do the spires so well beloved appear. From yonder craggy point the gale of heaven still wafts my native accent to mine ear. Propped on some moss-crowned rock, and gaily singing, there in the sun his nets the fisher dries. Oft have I heard the plaintive ballad bringing scenes of past joys before my sorrowing eyes. Ah, happy swain! He waits the accustomed hour when twilight gloom obscures the closing sky. Then gladly seeks his loved paternal bower and shares the feast his native fields supply. Friendship and love, his cottage guests receive him with honest welcome and with smile sincere. No threatening woes of present joys bereave him, no sigh his bosom owns, his cheek no tear. Ah, happy swain, such bliss to me denying, fortune thy lot with envy bids me view. Me, who, from home and Spain and exile flying, bid all I value, all I love, adieu. No more mine ear shall list the well-known ditty sung by some mountain girl who tends her goats, some village swain imploring amorous pity, or shepherd chanting wild his rustic notes, no more my arms a parent's fond embraces, no more my heart domestic calm must know. Far from these joys, which sighs, which memory traces, to sultry skies and distant climes I go. Where Indian suns engender new diseases, where snakes and tigers breed, I bend my way to brave the feverish thirst no art appeases, the yellow plague and madding blaze of day. But not to feel slow pangs consume my liver, To die by piecemeal in the bloom of age, My boiling blood drank by insatiate fever, And brain delirious with the day-star's rage, Can make me know such grief as thus to sever With many a bitter sigh, dear land, from thee. To feel this heart must dote on thee forever, And feel that all thy joys are torn from me, Ah, me! How oft will fancy's spells in slumber Recall my native country to my mind! How oft regret will bid me sadly number Each lost delight and dear friend left behind! Wild Mercia's vales and loved romantic bowers, The river on whose banks a child I played, My castle's ancient halls, its frowning towers, Each much-regretted wood, and well-known glade. Dreams of the land where all my wishes center, thy scenes which I am doomed no more to know, full oft shall memory trace my soul's tormentor, and turn each pleasure past to present woe. 
but lo the sun beneath the waves retires night speeds apace her empire to restore clouds from my sight obscure the village spires now seen but faintly and now seen no more oh breathe not winds still be the water's motion sleep sleep my bark in silence on the main so when to-morrow's light shall gild the ocean once more mine eyes shall see the coast of spain vain is the wish my last petition scorning fresh blows the gale and high the billows swell far shall we be before the break of morning oh then forever native spain farewell lorenzo had scarcely time to read these lines when elvita returned to him the giving a free course to her tears had relieved her and her spirits had regained their usual composure i have nothing more to say my lord said she you have heard my apprehensions and my reasons for begging you not to repeat your visits i have thrown myself in full confidence upon your honour i am certain that you will not prove my opinion of you to have been too favourable but one question more senora and i leave you should the duke of medina approve my love would my addresses be unacceptable to yourself and the fair antonia i will be open with you don lorenzo there being little probability of such a union taking place i fear that it is desired but too ardently by my daughter you have made an impression upon her young heart which gives me the most serious alarm to prevent that impression from growing stronger i am obliged to decline your acquaintance for me you may be sure that i should rejoice at establishing my child so advantageously conscious that my constitution impaired by grief and illness forbids me to expect a long continuance in this world i tremble at the thought of leaving her under the protection of a perfect stranger the marquise de las cisternas is totally unknown to me he will marry his lady may look upon antonia with an eye of displeasure and deprive her of her only friend should the duke your uncle give his consent you need not doubt obtaining mine and my daughter's but without his hope not for ours at all events whatever steps you may take whatever may be the duke's decision till you know it let me beg your forbearing to strengthen by your presence antonia's prepossession if the sanction of your relations authorizes your addressing her as your wife my doors fly open to you if that sanction is refused be satisfied to possess my esteem and gratitude but remember that we must meet no more lorenzo promised reluctantly to conform to this decree but he added that he hoped soon to obtain that consent which would give him a claim to the renewal of their acquaintance he then explained to her why the marquise had not called in person and made no scruple of confiding to her his sister's history he concluded by saying that he hoped to set agnes at liberty the next day and that as soon as don ramon's fears were quieted upon this subject he would lose no time in assuring doña elvira of his friendship and protection the lady shook her head i tremble for your sister said she i have heard many traits of the domina of st clair's character 
for a friend who was educated in the same convent with her. She reported her to be haughty, inflexible, superstitious, and revengeful. I have since heard that she is infatuated with the idea of rendering her convent the most regular in Madrid, and never forgave those whose imprudence threw upon it the slightest stain. Though naturally violent and severe, when her interests require it, she well knows how to assume an appearance of benignity. She leaves no means untried to persuade young women of rank to become members of her community. She is implacable when once incensed, and has too much intrepidity to shrink at taking the most rigorous measures for punishing the offender. Doubtless she will consider your sister's quitting the convent as a disgrace thrown upon it, she will use every artifice to avoid obeying the mandate of His Holiness, and I shudder to think that Doña Agnes is in the hands of this dangerous woman. Lorenzo now rose to take leave. Elvira gave him her hand at parting, which he kissed respectfully, and telling her that he soon hoped for the permission to salute that of Antonia, he returned to his hotel. The lady was perfectly satisfied with the conversation which had passed between them, she looked forward with satisfaction to the prospect of his becoming her son-in-law, but prudence bade her conceal from her daughter's knowledge the flattering hopes which herself now ventured to entertain. Scarcely was it day, and already Lorenzo was at the convent of St. Clair, furnished with the necessary mandate. The nuns were at Matins. He waited impatiently for the conclusion of the service, and at length the prioress appeared at the parlor grate. Agnes was demanded. The old lady replied with a melancholy air that the dear child's situation grew hourly more dangerous, that the physicians despaired of her life, but that they had declared the only chance for her recovery to consist in keeping her quiet and not to permit those to approach her whose presence was likely to agitate her. Not a word of all this was believed by Lorenzo any more than he credited the expressions of grief and affection for Agnes with which this account was interlarded. To end the business, he put the Pope's bull into the hands of the Domina, and insisted that, ill or in health, his sister should be delivered to him without delay. The prioress received the paper with an air of humility. But no sooner had her eye glanced over the contents than her resentment baffled all the efforts of hypocrisy. A deep crimson spread itself over her face, and she darted upon Lorenzo looks of rage and menace. "'This order is positive,' said she, in a voice of anger, which she in vain strove to disguise. "'Willingly would I obey it, but unfortunately it is out of my power.' Lorenzo interrupted her by an exclamation of surprise. "'I repeat it, senor.' To obey this order is totally out of my power. From tenderness to a brother's feelings, I would have communicated the sad event to you by degrees, and have prepared you to hear it with fortitude. My measures are broken through. This order commands me to deliver up to you the sister Agnes without delay. I am, therefore, obliged to inform you, without circumlocution, that on Friday last she expired. Lorenzo started back with horror and turned pale. A moment's recollection convinced him that this assertion must be false, and it restored him to himself. "'You deceive me,' said he passionately. 
but five minutes past you assured me that, though ill, she was still alive. Produce her this instant. See her I must, and will, and every attempt to keep her from me will be unavailing. You forget yourself, senor. You owe respect to my age as well as my profession. Your sister is no more. If I had first concealed her death, it was from dreading lest an event so unexpected should produce on you too violent an effect. In truth, I am but ill repaid for my attention. And what interest, I pray you, should I have in detaining her? To know her wish of quitting our society is a sufficient reason for me to wish her absence, and think her a disgrace to the sisterhood of St. Clair. But she has forfeited my affection in a manner yet more culpable. Her crimes were great, and when you know the cause of her death, you will doubtless rejoice, Don Lorenzo, that such a wretch is no longer in existence. She was taken ill on Thursday last, on returning from confession in the Capuchin Chapel. Her malady seemed attended with strange circumstances, but she persisted in concealing its cause. Thanks to the Virgin, we were too ignorant to suspect it. Judge then what must have been our consternation, our horror, when she was delivered the next day of a stillborn child, whom she immediately followed to the grave. How, senor, is it possible that your countenance expresses no surprise, no indignation? Is it possible that your sister's infamy was known to you, and that still she possessed your affection? In that case you have no need of my compassion. I can say nothing more except repeat my inability of obeying the orders of His Holiness. Agnes is no more, and to convince you that what I say is true, I swear by our blessed Saviour that three days have passed since she was buried. Here she kissed a small crucifix which hung at her girdle. She then rose from her chair and quitted the parlour. As she withdrew, she cast upon Lorenzo a scornful smile. Farewell, senor, said she. I know no remedy for this accident. I fear that even a second bull from the Pope will not procure your sister's resurrection. Lorenzo also retired, penetrated with affliction. But Don Ramon's, at the news of this event, amounted to madness. He would not be convinced that Agnes was really dead, and continued to insist that the walls of St. Clair still confined her. No arguments could make him abandon his hopes of regaining her. Every day some fresh scheme was invented for procuring intelligence of her, and all of them were attended with the same success. On his part, Medina gave up the idea of ever seeing his sister more. Yet he believed that she had been taken off by unfair means. Under this persuasion he encouraged Don Ramon's researches, determined, should he discover the least warrant for his suspicions, to take a severe vengeance upon the unfeeling prioress. The loss of his sister affected him sincerely, nor was it the least cause of his distress that propriety obliged him for some time to defer mentioning Antonia to the duke. In the meanwhile, his emissaries constantly surrounded Elvida's door. He had intelligence of all the movements of his mistress. As she never failed every Thursday to attend the sermon in the Capuchin Cathedral, he was secure of seeing her once a week though in compliance with his promise, he carefully shunned her observation. Thus two long months passed away. 
Still no information was procured of Agnes. All but the Marquise credited her death, and now Lorenzo determined to disclose his sentiments to his uncle. He had already dropped some hints of his intention to marry. They had been as favorably received as he could expect, and he harbored no doubt of the success of his application. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista